Okay, so welcome everyone uh, to Drisha, and this is the third class in this session uh, from Slicha to Avoda, an introduction to the lit liturgical poetry of Elul and the Yamim Noraim with Eats Landis. We encourage everyone to turn on their video, like I said, if they're able to. Uh, it's just nice to feel like we're together. Um, feel free to ask any questions or uh, comment by writing here in the chat box on Zoom or, or as a comment on Facebook if you're watching us live. Tonight's class will focus on the Seder Havoda of Yom Kippur. And with that, I'll turn this to uh, Eats. Uh, okay, thanks. Um, I hope everyone had a meaningful Rosh Hashanah and those who fasted or might still be fasting, depending on where you are. Uh, had a meaningful and easy fast today. Um, can everyone, everyone can hear me all right? Great. So without further ado, I'm gonna share my screen because there's quite a bit to get through. People can see that. Yeah, okay, good. Um, so let's go right ahead. So uh, I'll just begin with an outline of today's class. We'll do a little bit of review over the last two classes. Then we'll go into an introduction slash overview of the Seder Avodah uh, genre of Piyut. Um, we'll look at some early evidence for the recitation of a Seder Avodah. Um, and then we'll look briefly at just kind of a snapshot of some major common Seder Avodah um, that are used in various communities throughout the world today. Um, we'll be sticking more to the PowerPoint than the, than the source. I think it'll be a little easy to follow here. Uh, and then We'll take a closer look at Atakonanta Olam Erosh, um, which isn't the, the Piyot that I sent to you, although some of the associated Piyot team are the same, but for those who did read it, you'll see that the one that we're reading today is kind of a model for the one that I had you read, uh, which I think is an interesting way to kind of see how the genre develops over time. Um, and then we'll do a summary both of today's class and of the entire kind of series. So just quickly a review of what we saw until now. And the first, uh, generally speaking, we're talking about, or we've been speaking about kind of three different liturgical uh, moments in the Jewish calendar, um, which also to an extent can be divided into three different genres. Um, although there's a lot of different subgenres inside of that. And we spoke last week about how Rosh Hashanah does have specific, some specific genres that kind of are of course unique to the day, but we looked more kind of at just various kind of aspects of the, of the prayers on Rosh Hashanah as opposed to looking at one specific genre like we did in the first class and like we're doing today. Uh, so with that, we in the first class two weeks ago, we spoke about slichot, but we first spoke about piyut in general, right? This form of liturgical poetry, which um, kind of began in late antique uh, Palestine, the land of Israel, in the maybe the fourth, more like the fifth century and on, uh, which eventually spread to Babylonia and then to really everywhere in the Jewish diaspora, um, and is still in use today to an extent, not to the same extent that it had been used in the, used in the past. Uh, we've got slichot more specifically, uh, which actually is a genre that began in Babylonia, but then spread all over the Jewish world. Uh, last week, we looked at the Pew team and other prayers for Rosh Hashanah. Um, and one specific kind of genre of Pew that we talked about is the Tkiatot, right? These are the Pew team that adorn um, the blessings that are added into the Mosaf on Rosh Hashanah, um, some of which actually have already kind of become so popular that they're just kind of part of the standardized liturgy at this point. And we don't even necessarily perceive of them as being some kind of extra form of liturgical poetry. Uh, and today we'll talk about the Seder Avodah, Yom Kippur, which is, uh, some actually might say is the beginning of old Piyot. It might be the earliest form of Piyot uh, that we know of. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit, uh, but it certainly is really one of the most epic uh, and also mythic and extensive genres of Piyot um, in existence. Um, and so I'm excited to talk about it. So first of all, I should just mention that I, I, there is a really, really handy resource for studying the genre of Piyot. It's appropriately called 
Avodah, <laughs> Ancient Poems for Yom Kippur, um, published by two scholars. Uh, Joseph Yehalom was, was a professor at Hebrew University of Hebrew Language and Hebrew Literature, has, retired for a number of, has been uh, retired for a number of years now, and Michael Swartz, who is a professor at Ohio State University, um, who focuses more on the history of sacrifice uh, and at times also in the history of liturgy and liturgical poetry. And so they kind of came from those two angles and made this anthology um, printed quite beautifully. If anyone saw the PDF when preparing this lecture, I realized just like how much thought they had put into the presentation of the material, which is very, very difficult, especially when you're doing it in both English and in Hebrew. Um, and it's a, you can get it in paperback. It's pretty cheap. If you order it today, it'll likely come before Yom Kippur. Uh, this is the contents. Um, so it has really what they, what they perceive to be as the earliest um, examples of the Seder Avodah, although this one, Azbe Enkol, which was published by Yosef Yalom around a decade beforehand, um, I personally do not think it's actually that early. I think it actually is a later uh, version of Seder Avodah, not from the fifth century, but actually maybe from the 10th century or so. And that's in light, in light of what some, some things that Shemitah Litzul has, has written on that, on that piyut. And I'll just say that as recently as this past week, <laughs> um, a new book of piyut team for Yom Kippur came out published by Michael Rand and Shlomit Litzul. I mentioned they put a book out around a number of years ago of the Kaliri's Pew team for Shoshanah. So just this week in time for Yom Kippur, if you're in Israel, you can get it, but not in America in time. Uh, they put out an edition of all of the Pew team for the, the Kaliri that we know of Yom Kippur, but there is no Seder Avodah in the book. We know that the Kaliri wrote one, even the Ramban mentions it. So it was probably in existence kind of deep into the Middle Ages, but we have not yet found a copy of it. Unless I'm mistaken, that's the last that I'm aware of. Last time I spoke about this, she said that she had not yet found it. Um, so important book, but less relevant to today's class since we're focusing specifically on Seder Avodah. So what is Seder Avodah? Well, let's look at some kind of the overall structure, which is which recurs throughout the genre uh, and some kind of main themes. Um, so what it begins with, um, this is true in all of them, is the history of the world culminating in the high priest's service in the temple on Yom Kippur. We'll see this in more detail in the second half of the class, but just think about that. There's a description of the history of the world, and it's as if the pinnacle of all human existence is the election of Aaron and his descendants and the fact that they serve in the temple on Yom Kippur. So that already kind of sets the stage, right? That shows how important um, sacrificial worship is, specifically sacrificial worship on Yom Kippur in the temple. Um, and it's something to think about. I mean, biblical histories do this every now and then, right? We see this, uh, like Arami Ovedavi also kind of has these, these kind of sweeping histories that kind of culminate in something specific, uh, or Nehemiah also we see these kinds of sweeping histories of ancient Israel that culminate in something. Um, and this of course paints the Yom Kippur service in this kind of light of it having not just significance for the high priest, of course, or even just for the people of Israel, but for the entire world. Um, and then following that, what appears is a detailed description, poetic description, I should say, of the Yom Kippur temple service. And then at some point in the history of the genre, relatively early, uh, there were appended to that different laments, right? We'll go into this in more detail in the second half of the class, but just to kind of set the stage, um, there's this description, it ends in a very high note of, you know, the high priest coming out, looking so beautiful, having a feast. And then it says, oh, but we actually don't have a high priest anymore. And there's this lament over the current state of exile, which prevents us from achieving atonement in the way that they did in the past in the time of the temple. Um, at some point in the history of the genre, they appended two things in the beginning to that. One is the Sedel Briot. This is probably actually added pretty early on. And that is kind of ruminations on creation, um, and, you know, the cosmogony, cosmology of all that. 
And then something which we see all the time uh, in Piyot, and we saw this also last week, and those are Rishiyot, right? These are kind of the introdu introductory poems that uh, in which the Chazan or Paitan asks permission to go and recite the poetry, recite the liturgical poetry. And we spoke last week about um, why it is that permission is, is necessary. Um, so right, Ochila Lakeel is one that appears quite frequently throughout um, the various rites. So that's just a kind of look from above of what the genre is, what it looks like, what are some of the main themes. Now we're gonna look at some, oh, actually, before I actually go to the next topic, I just wanna point out again, as we did last week. So these are poems um, that were first written in the land of Israel in Galilee. At the, and we actually do have, we don't have the manuscripts themselves, we don't have the texts themselves from that time, we only have copies of them from the Middle Ages, but we do have synagogues in which some of these Paitanim might have actually, you know, functioned as Chazanim or the early kind of uh, users of their PUT might have operated. And it's interesting to see that actually in a lot of these synagogues, this is taken from the floor mosaic and Sepphoris, which is from the fifth century, uh, there actually is quite a lot of depiction of sacrifice um, and of the high priest even. So we could see that there is kind of this uh, multimedia uh, experience that might have been um, what folks in late antique Palestine were experiencing on Yom Kippur. Um, right, you could see um, and various other kind of accoutrements from the temple. Um, so early evidence for the recitation of Seder Avodah. First things first, uh, the Mishnah, quite interestingly, um, in its depiction of the high priest service on the Day of Atonement, um, it does kind of, how should I say this? It diverges a bit from the biblical uh, description in a few different points. And one of the times in which it diverges from the biblical uh, description is when it talks about the high priest reading the biblical description, right? There's a moment in his service in which he kind of stops. It seems kind of weird. Um, and he goes and reads the Torah and, and reads out what it is that he is supposedly doing at that time or just had done uh, in the temple. Um, there's some things to be said about that. I mean, it's interesting to see that there is this need to kind of um, insert in the depiction here uh, the element of reading. Um, on the one hand, this is something which we see cross-culturally in different kind of various forms of sacrifice. It's something which is quite well documented, for example, in Vedic sacrifice in, in India, uh, that there is while well, one priest will be performing sacrifice, another priest will be just kind of reading out loud the instructions, um, either to guide that priest or perhaps actually to kind of um, fill in if that priest would make a mistake. If it wasn't performed properly, um, physically, at least verbally, it was performed properly. That's one interpretation. Uh, a simultaneous interpretation, an alternative interpretation could be that this was an attempt by the rabbis, uh, looking back from the second century or the third century to say, our practice now of reading the Torah and of discussing and, and perhaps even performing in other ways, um, the depict, depiction of the temple sacrifice and the Day of Atonement was something actually which was already current in the time of the temple itself, right? It's saying, it's, it's giving it legitimacy by depicting the high priests as, as having already done this in the time of the temple, even though it's probably anachronistic. Either way though, it is evidence from at least the time of the Mishnah um, that folks would have expected there to have been a reading of the description of the temple worship um, for the Day of Atonement on the Day of Atonement itself. A little bit more explicit um, is this piece of evidence, which comes up in the Bavli actually, so not, not pertaining to the land of Israel. Um, and actually there's two things in Bavli Yoma which kind of seem to hint at a practice like Seder Avodah, like the reading or performance of 
um, the depiction of the temple worship. And this is actually the kind of evidence which we like a lot as historians because it's not like the Mishnah. It's not being prescriptive. It's not saying this is what was done or this is what should be done. It's kind of just like, by the way, this is something that happened. And whenever that kind of comes up, that's something which historians are like, ah, that's probably more believable than the prescriptive texts. So once a man went down before Rabbah and arranged his prayer in accord with Rabbi Meir's view, and this has to do with an argument in the Mishnah between Rabbi Meir and the Chachamim about how the, the vidoy of the Kohen Gadol is supposed to have been recited. And Rabbi said to him, do you forsake the sages and act like Rabbi Meir? And he answered, I hold as Rabbi Meir, for thus is written in the Torah of Moses. What exactly the argument here is not, not so important. What's important for us in terms of the history of the genre is that it seems like there was this time in the past, you know, already in the time of the Talmud, um, in which it was the practice for a chazan or some other kind of prayer uh, leader to go and recite something like the depiction of the Yom Kippur temple service on Yom Kippur itself. Um, so this kind of allows us to date the genre relatively early. And again, as mentioned two classes ago, there's actually very little evidence in rabbinic literature proper for Pewd. Um, and so here, when we actually do have evidence for something like Pewd, it seems to be evidence for Seder Ahuda. Um, so moving forward, uh, in 1907, Ismar Elbogen, who might be familiar to some people because he's an extremely important scholar of liturgy, um, his kind of introduction to his Jewish liturgy, published in English as Jewish liturgy, um, is um, still kind of the major, our main handbook that we have, even though he published it almost 100 years ago at this point. So in 1907, he published an article uh, in which he edited a manuscript from the Kairogeniza, which picture of you could see it right here, which describes um, the temple worship on the Day of Atonement and not poetic exactly, but somewhat poetic kind of form. Um, and one of the things that it does also is that it elides all of the disagreements in the Mishnah, a Mishnah of Yomah. So it essentially, it seems like it's a copy of Mishnah Yomah. Actually, some scholars have at times thought that by mistake that it actually is just a copy of Mishnah Yomah, but it seems like it is, you know, made into something that is a little bit kind of like poetry or easier to recite in a synagogue as there's, you know, no, no halachic digressions and arguments and things like that. So this is what it looks like, and this is what it looks like. Right? Some might say Shivayamim, Kodem Yom Kippurim. Seven days before Yom Kippur, I'll read it in English. They would remove the high priest from his house to the chancellor's chamber and prepare another priest in his place in case something happened to disqualify him. It's, it's a lot just like the beginning of Mishnah Yomah. Uh, the elders of the court handed him over to the elders of the priesthood, and they read to him from the order of the day. What the presentation here in Swartz and Yahalom's translation kind of points out is that it is a lot just like the Mishnah. They even have kind of, you know, the, the order of the Mishnah here printed on the side. Uh, but then whenever it's bolded, these are some slight differences between the Mishnahic text and the text of Shivat Yemim. Um, so the thinking is that this actually is perhaps the earliest version of the Seder Avodah that we have uh, in front of us that has survived from antiquity. It might even have been the one that was used perhaps in the time of the Talmud proper or one of the ones that was used in the time of the Talmud proper. And it hews really, 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 really close to the Mishnah itself. It just kind of makes the Mishnah into something that can be performed in synagogue without it sounding, you know, too halachic, so to speak. So that is some of the early evidence. And you could take a look here. This is what it looks like. Um, beforehand, there is an introductory text, a tabarata, um, which seems to have something of a life of its own. But at least in this Kinesi manuscript, it appears right beforehand. Um, you see it starts right there, a tabarata taolam. So, I'm not going to read through it, but even from those few words, you can see that it begins with this, you know, this talking directly to God uh, and saying that, you know, beginning with the creation of the world, which as mentioned earlier, will end up kind of culminating in the 
uh, high priest's performance on the Day of Atonement. So that's also some evidence that has been used to kind of say that this is a relatively old genre of pute. And then lastly, um, and something we'll come back to, some scholars have pointed out um, different pieces of Second Temple period literature, right? So we have from the period of Second Temple, we have, I mentioned earlier, the Mishnah and the Talmud talk a lot about things that took place in the Second Temple, but in the time of the Second Temple and in the Second Temple, um, but they were written later. We can't necessarily trust them further as, you know, historically sound piece of evidence, but we do have literature that was written in the time of the Second Temple. Um, these are texts either that we have found, like for example, at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, or that were preserved over time, mainly by Christians, right? So we have Josephus, Philo, uh, the Book of Ben Sirah, the Book of the Maccabees, books of Maccabees, uh, which were written at the time of the Second Temple and depict things that took place at that time. Also questionable how exactly we can trust them as for historical reasons, but in terms of the history of liturgy, um, they're obviously extremely, extremely important resources. And so, um, there are, there's one text in particular from Qumran, or actually a few texts from Qumran, but one that's most important for us, which scholars call 5Q13, <laughs> uh, not a very catchy name, um, which seems to highlight the history of Israel leading up to the priesthood slash the Levites. So that's very similar kind of to the introductory text that we see in the Seder Avoda. Teacher Maim Menachem Kister has specifically kind of published an article on that specific uh, manuscript fragment, um, arguing that it is an antecedent of the Seder Avoda. Uh, which would then mean that there was perhaps something like the ritual of the recitation of the Seder Avodah already in the time of the Second Temple proper. Um, and then most extensively is from Ben Sira, um, which was written just before the beginning of the Maccabean period, so kind of the beginning of the second century BCE in Jerusalem proper, it seems, uh, in Hebrew, but translated into Greek very, very quickly. Um, so there's this quite extensive um, Praise of the Fathers, sections or chapters 44 to 49, which Ben Sir kind of goes through the history of ancient Israel, highlighting all the important leaders that the Israelites had had, uh, which culminates with the high priest in his own time, Simon the son of Onias, um, and a description of his service in the temple. So it really is quite similar to what we see um, in the Seder of Abodat today, although scholars argue the extent to which it's specifically a depiction of. The Yom Kippur service, or maybe it's actually a depiction of just the regular kind of daily Tamid service, in which case it's a question why would the high priest be doing that. But you can see scholars have argued about this, and there's no real way to get out of the argument. Nonetheless, what's important is it does seem there is grounds, there's reason to believe that the genre of the Seder Avodah is extremely old. There's evidence from the Talmudic period proper, and it seems like it might even be reliant on some forms of liturgical genres that actually were current in the time of the Second Temple period proper. Uh, and we'll come back to this later um, after we see some examples of Putim, which actually do have some very, very specific kind of parallels um, to texts from the Second Temple period. So um, just to wet our palate a bit, look at some major or slash common Sidre Avodah, starting with Amitzkoach, which is um, of Meshulam ben Klonimus, lived in the 10th to 11th century, first in Italy, part of a family that moved to Germany, um, kind of beginning to, to an extent of rabbinic um, presence in Germany which is the most common Seder in the Ashkenazi rite. Um, it is very much styled after the early Palestinian uh, Seder Avodah. It's clear that he read uh, the Seder Avodah of Yosef ben Yusei and kind of riffed off of them. I took it here. This image is from the uh, Alliance manuscript number 24 from Paris, uh, sometimes referred to as the Luzzato High Holiday Machsor because it was owned by uh, Shmuel David Luzzato, important Italian scholar and bibliophile in the first half of the 19th century. Um, and I brought it because, um, well, before I say why I brought it, 
here's another, there's, here's the, you can see the um, other pages of it, which come right beforehand. These are the Rishuyot, so these are familiar from our own masters today. Hayayim Pipiyot Shluchei Amcha and Ochila Lekel, you can see printed very big, very large kind of font. On the other side here, you can see in reverse Amit's, so it comes right before Amit's Koach. Um, and I mentioned this manuscript in particular because it's on sale <laughs> right now at Sotheby's. Um, it's the sale, unfortunately, is after Yom Kippur. So if you have $4 million or $6 million, uh, even then you would not be able to purchase this in time for this Yom Kippur, maybe next Yom Kippur. Um, but yeah, it's a beautiful manuscript. It'll be on display in New York if you want to go downtown and, and see it at some point in the coming weeks. Um, but okay, I mentioned Luzzato. Let's go to Italy for a second. Actually, the most common one in the Italian rite, uh, for the most part, is Seder Vodah by Rabbi Yochanan Kohen, who lived in the 7th centuries in the land of Israel. Kind of odd that this ended up being the one that was so common in Italy, but that's what happened. Um, here it is from a manuscript from Palma. Um, you can see Ezekiel Sela. Um, Avram Ibn Ezra um, also had one which was, you would think would actually have been quite popular in the Spanish rite, but actually it, it ended up not becoming that popular, although it, for some reason, kind of made its way to Yemen and was popular there. It is from actually a relatively late manuscript currently housed in, in the Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, and another one, um, which is quite early, Yosef and Yosef, who I mentioned last week as having written some Pew Team for Shoshana, we think that there are actually three Sidre that he wrote. Um, for the most part, they're actually not used today. Atakonanto Lambaruch Chesed, which I asked you all to read, is actually really only used in the French right, um, and not even so much anymore since the Shoah, the French right no longer really exists. Um, although some other Pew that he wrote for um, Yom Kippur, and we'll see them later on in today's class, actually still are used. And let's see, um, and actually, the reason why a lot of the other ones didn't survive um, is because Atakonanto Lamirosh was just so, so popular. And this is one that we'll look at in the second half of the class. It's anonymous, but it's clearly early and clear from the land of Israel. At times, as you can see in this manuscript right here from Palma, which is written originally in Spain in the 14th century, it's attributed to Yosef and Yosef, who they refer to even as Kohen Gadol. And that's just merely because he wrote about the priesthood and his Siddur of Odab. There's no actual reason to think that he was a Kohen, let alone, let alone Kohen Gadol, given that we could be quite certain that he lived in the fifth century. Um, and yeah, it's clear though that Yosef Ben Yosef read it and it influenced his own compositions. We're not going to go into that in detail, but if you read Atzakonanta Olam Berav Chesed, if you read Atzakonanta Olam Berosh before the class, you'll see when you read Atzakonanta Olam Berav Chesed that it's clear that he was reliant on it. Uh, it was the most common seder in the Spanish rites. Um, the Rizal picked it up. It became the rite of the Chassidim also in what we call now Nusach Svarad. Um, it's also very popular in some Ashkenazi rites today, um, largely because of what happened in Israel and the mixing of the rites there. But even I think in a lot of American printed Machsorim, it's kind of printed as an alternative. Uh, I prefer Tamitzkoach, but I'm not the one who gets to call the shots usually. Um, and then lastly, I'll just mention a relatively recent Seder uh, Vodah that was written by the aforementioned Shadal, Shema Shmuel David um, apparently he wrote it when he was like a teenager, <laughs> uh, but it was only published posthumously in his collection of poetry, Kinur Naim, which is a fantastic kind of collection of poetry that he wrote for various occasions, including actually a whole slew of epitaphs. Um, and here it is, you can see this teenage Shmuel David Zato writing a Seda Vodal Yom Kippur. This is kind of the last, it's kind of hard to articulate anyway, because he of course will not consider himself orthodox, but 
definitely would consider himself as kind of being a part of the halakhic tradition without necessarily breaking from it, although folks were very critical of him and various opinions of his. Um, but of course, following Shadal, um, not perhaps in that tradition, but in other traditions, specifically following the Reformation uh, and the, reform, the rise of the Reform Movement, a lot of other kind of uh, ways of approaching the Seder Voda have taken shape and taken root, but we're not going to look at that today. Uh, with that, I should say that in the Middle Ages proper, um, and Shadal is kind of an outlier in the fact that he continued to write this in the 19th century, but up until the 14th century, it was quite common um, for scholars to attempt to write a Seder Avoda, kind of similar to how we saw the Azorot, if any of you are in my class before Shabbat, that it's kind of like a challenge for scholars, oftentimes who are also poets, to kind of write something in this, in this genre. Okay, that is kind of a general introduction to Seder Avoda. I went through it kind of quickly because I want to devote a lot of time to actually reading um, one Seder Voda in detail, but I do want to pause just for a moment to see if there's any kind of clarifying questions about what I spoke about until now. Okay, in that case, we will continue. So we're going to take a closer look at Atakwananta or Lamerosh and some associated beauty. We saw it earlier from this uh, Spanish master from uh, the 14th, beginning of the 14th, oh, sorry, the end of the 14th century. Uh, but that's just one example. It is extremely common. You can find it in dozens, dozens of European manuscripts and also in the Cairo Geniza, and of course, in many, many printed Siduri. Um, and although it's referred to as having been written by Yosef Ben Yosef, in various manuscripts, scholars do not actually think that's the case. Um, it's not a very strong attribution um, in that regard. And it is considered to be an anonymous early piyut, likely one of the earliest Siduri that have survived from antiquity. It was a little hard for me to presented on the screen. Um, I hope that this is somewhat, you could follow along here. Um, but yeah, so it begins, mainly read it in English, I think. You established the world from the beginning. You founded the earth and formed creatures. When you surveyed the world of chaos and confusion, you banished gloom and put light in place. I should say this is Swartz and Yalom's translation into English. You formed from the earth a lump of soil in your image and commanded him concerning the tree of life. He forsook, he forsook your, your word and he was forsaken from Aden, but you did not destroy him for the sake of the work of your hands. You increased his fruit and blessed his seed and let them flourish in your goodness and let them live in quiet. But they broke the yoke and said to God, go away. Then you took away your hand and they withered instantly like grass. You remembered your covenant with the one who was blameless in his generation and as a reward, you made him a remnant forever. You made a permanent covenant of the rainbow for his sake, and in your love for his fragrant offering, you blessed his children. They erred in their wealth and built the tower and said, let us split the firmament and fight against him. So as we can see, this is the history of ancient Israel, or not even Israel at this point really, but a history of the world and the eyes of the Bible up until the Tower of Babel. Any comments on the poetics here? One thing which we didn't see in translation is that there is this acrostic, and it's a very, very strong tradition in the Siddur Abodat to have this alphabet acrostic. But how would we characterize the aesthetic here, or the poetics for that matter? Uh, it has lots of imagery. Mm -hmm. I don't know who said that, but definitely has a lot of imagery, right? So how does the imagery work per se? Like what, so yeah, what happened, what, 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 how is the imagery used? Like when it says withered instantly like grass. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that, that's, a, that's, that's a pretty um, um, 
Uh, I'm not sure how it's being used, but that's quite an image. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, right? The Python is definitely trying to like, you know, bring forth images in front of the audience, like getting them to, to, to think about what things look like for sure. Sometimes you call that like ekphrasis, is describing things. Sally, did you also want to comment? Well, I think a lot of the choice of words are Chatsira, um, I mean, to me is Unatana Tokef, but have I got the timing wrong on who influenced whom? And um, Golem is not a word that's often used. And it just looks like that. Vaifaku Ol is also, I think it feels like a from a different time. I think you're, you're, yeah, you're on the right side. Like he's definitely trying to use words that are difficult in a certain extent, like, you know, obscure words. There is that attempt to kind of um, call upon obscurity to kind of elevate the, the style and the aesthetic for sure. Um, so we have imagery, we have difficult words. Um, over time, it becomes less difficult because the Pythonim read each other and use the same words as the earlier one used, or the one before him used. So you kind of at least as someone who's reading it, you're able to kind of get a sense for what's going on. But I imagine as a listener in antiquity, it would have been quite difficult to understand. But on top of that also, the obscurity, you have to know what it's referring to, right? He never says Adam, he never says Noach, he never says even Bavin, right? He's always kind of referring to things by using either obscure words or by using kind of different kind of descriptors that, well, then you'll have to know, given your prior knowledge of the Bible, what it's referring to. Right, so this is a, a method that scholars have called kinui, um, nicknames, I guess you could say, <laughs> in, modern, in uh, modern English. Um, but there's the Python almost never, not just this anonymous Python, but most Pythonim of the pre-classical and classical period, they, that is very much kind of what they deem to be uh, one of the defining characteristics of the genre of this form of writing in Hebrew. And that's that they do not call something like it is. They'll never say Adam. They'll never say Abraham or anything like that. They'll always kind of try and find other ways to get to that. Um, it might be a little too early to kind of think about what's missing here in the aesthetic, but I do want us to start thinking about it already, um, right? So like what exactly, yeah, we see this a lot in Talon Geshem. Um, most of Talon Geshem stuff comes from the Kaliri and that's extremely, extremely kind of obscure kind of references um, that come up there and scholars to this day actually don't even know what all the references are. Um, but yeah, on top of that, we have the acrostic, which you mentioned, Ata Konanta Olame Rosh, Ata Konanta Olame Rosh, right? That's a four-part syllable stress. Yisata Tevel Uvriyot Yetzalta, also a four-part syllable stress, which I mentioned in the first class is also a sign kind of of, of earliness um, in, in style, uh, the stat stress pattern. Uh, and also there's, there's no real rhyme scheme here. Uh, so there is not yet rhyme um, in this poetry. Um, which of course, as you go forward in time, does become more prevalent. So those are some things which we noticed that are here and it's things I think actually, which we can be pretty clear about that were important to the Pythonim. But what I want you to kind of think about is, is, what's, is what's missing, what's absent from, the, from, from this uh, form of poetry, which you might be familiar with actually from biblical poetry or what you might know of from other forms of Hebrew poetry or just poetry in general. Um, but keep that in mind as we read through another slide. Um, the father of a multitude shine forth like a star, right? Uh, suddenly from aura of the Chaldees to illuminate in darkness. So he's not going to say Avram, he's going to say Yechid Avhamon, right? He has some kind of Kinoi way of, of referring to him. And actually something which I found to be very helpful and quite ingenious in Swartz and Yalom's translation 
is that whenever they have something like that, they print in the middle of the text what the reference is in, you know, in, the, in, in bold. They kind of say like, on the side in the margin here, it says Avram, so that if you didn't get it, then you can get it. Uh, you deferred your anger when you surveyed his deeds, and when he was old, you looked into his heart. You brought forth from him a fair garland, a pure lamb from a choice sheep, Isaac. From his root, you brought forth a perfect man, Jacob, sealed with your covenant when he was taken from the room. There's a midrash that he was born circumcised. You gave him 12 tribes, beloved by the Most High. They were called from the womb. You placed a fair garland of favor upon Levi, and all of his brothers you placed a crown, and of all of his brothers you placed a crown on him. Amram was chosen from the seed of Levi, Aaron, holy to the Lord, uh, you sanctified from his stock. Right, so pretty quickly, um, we got to, to Aaron. Um, as time goes on, as the genre develops, people will become more belabored and it will take them longer to get to Aaron, but this is one of the earliest ones we have, um, and we got there pretty quickly. Um, so now the Python will take actually much, much longer to, to go through kind of, um, first of all, how amazing Aaron is, and second of all, the details of his service on Yom Kippur. You adorned him in woven garments, and by his sacrifices, he annulled your anger. Dyed him robe and linen breeches, breastpiece, a foad, royal headdresses and sash, sacrifice of bulls and burnt offerings of sheep, and the slaughter of goats and the cutting up of rams, the perfumed aroma and the burning of coals, correct enumeration and the dashing of blood, supplication at the incense and true prayer, and his holiness, which atones for our sins, the measurement of fine linen and the arrangement of jewels, he is girded in all of these like a ministering angel, right? So just in terms of just, you know, statistically or quantitatively, there's actually already a lot more lines devoted to him. And the real, as I think Jonathan kind of mentioned earlier, these physical descriptions that we see the Python uh, enjoying is really kind of waxing poetic here about specifically the appearance of Aharon. Something which of course didn't come up at all beforehand. Um, so what's to be said about that, right? Imagine this is being performed for the first time or the first however many times in a synagogue in which actually there probably is a depiction of Aaron in the mosaic floor right there. Um, some scholars have actually even called this something like a mosaic style to a certain extent um, because he doesn't necessarily go into such detail about um, what each specific thing looks like, but he kind of jumps from thing to thing saying there's this, there's that, there's this, there's that. And the mosaic art form itself also doesn't allow at least especially now when you're in some kind of province like Galilee, um, for such kind of fine detail, but does allow you to depict a lot of things in various ways close to one another. So folks have referred to it as mosaic style or, or jeweled style at, um, at times as well. But there is clearly this aesthetic of, this is something which will the crowd will, will find beautiful. Um, and of course, there also is something here that has to do with ritual theory, right? There is something here about how his presence himself, his holiness himself, um, atones for people's sins, right? We see something like that also in the Bible already, um, that there is atonement that comes from the priest itself, and of course also from his accoutrements and from sacrifice. Although there are scholars who argue that it's not exactly atonement, but here we see that it is really atonement that is what is being depicted, um, and it is something that is beautiful. You ordained all these for the glory of Aaron. You made him for Israel an instrument of atonement. It's quite explicit. In Aaron's place stood one of his clan to serve before you on the day of forgiveness. For seven days, he stood in our temple, the laws of the procedure and the service of the day. Now that we got to those who replaced Aaron, of course, we're talking about several hundred years or so later, um, we are already kind of gotten to the point of the poetic rendition of Misachet Yoma, the Mishnah. For the elders of his people and the sages of his brothers perpetually surrounded him until the day arrived. 
And they said to him, see before whom you are entering to a place of fire, a burning flame. Our community's congregation relies on you and by your hands will be our forgiveness. They commanded him and taught him until the 10th day so that he would be accustomed to the order of the Avodah. They spread out for him a sheep and he slaughtered the sheep to make a separation between him and the people. He performed the commandment in awe and fear and examined himself for interpositions during ablution. <laughs> um, it's not so easy to translate this into English. He rejoiced in the commandment to uphold his law and went down and immersed as he was instructed. They gave him golden garments and he put them on and washed his hands and his feet. Immediately he received the sheep for the tamid and performed it as required as for the whole year. Inside he entered to offer the incense and to repair the lamps and to sacrifice limbs. As commanded every day he made cakes and offered the wine libation in all proper vessels, right? So something also which the Python is trying to I think emphasize here is the extent to which this is an unbelievable feat, right? He is like a superstar, he is like an athlete. He's going from place to place in the temple. He's doing this, he's doing that. And he's doing it a lot, of course, doing it exactly in accordance with how he was instructed. Um, we'll just read a few more lines from the Piyut um, before kind of zooming out a bit. Um, he came once to the house of Parva and they spread for him out a, a sheet as before. Before he took off his golden garments, he washed clean his hands and his feet. He began to take off his golden garments, etc., etc. Hired and washed his hands and his feet and first approached toward his bowl. He stood in awe before the Most High and said over it words of confession, right? And this is kind of what some scholars would say the defining characteristic and like the most important thing of what makes a Seder Avodah a Seder Avodah, and that's the recitation of the confession um, and the response, Baruch Shem um, and you shall be pure. Um, so that goes on a few more times, right? He, they then bring him the two goats. He does the lots. Some questions about whether there actually were lots in Yom Kippur, but something which appears in pretty much all the Sudra of Odam. Um, and then that continues until I'll just kind of jump to the end here of this piyut. They brought him his own clothes and he put them on. Then they accompanied him to his house. And he celebrated the holiday for those who love him. When he went out safely from the holy shrine, happy is the people who have it so, happy is the people whose God is the Lord. So we did not read all the lines, but I think you can get a pretty good sense of kind of how this works. And I'm, I'm sure people also are familiar either from what I sent up beforehand or just from going to Shalom Yom Kippur of, of what the genre is like and how this works. So going back for a moment to the question of the poetry, and then we'll talk about the question of liturgy. We talked about the aesthetic style in terms of the acrostic, the rhyme, or sorry, the stress pattern, the lack of rhyme at this point. Um, the use of what's called kinoi, right, these kind of references, um, the imagery, which is extremely important for him, also the, the willingness or the desire to kind of jump from image to image to kind of wow the audience also with the spectacle of what the high priest did. Um, but again, thinking about what we know from biblical poetry, even which is in Hebrew, and which of course the Bataan would have been aware of, what is one method, what is one aspect of biblical poetry that is missing? I think actually might be helpful if we go back a few slides. Um, when he's describing how beautiful the high priest is, right? Died in robe and linen breeches, breastpiece of forward royal headdress and sash. If a biblical poet was trying to describe how beautiful something is, what would they do? They'd use metaphor, probably, or simile, right? There'd, al there'd always be this kind of attempt to kind of say something is like something, right? There's always some kind of something is like something else or better than something else. But for some reason, the Paitanim almost never do that. 
they very, very rarely actually use simile or metaphor. Um, simile is a kind of a form of metaphor, um, which is an interesting question in the history of kind of Hebrew poetry, given that it was so prevalent in biblical poetry, given that it's actually so prevalent also in Hebrew poetry we have in the second Hebrew period, why is it absent from Piyut? Um, there's two main theories here um, among scholars. Um, one is that they actually were trying to create a genre that was different than biblical poetry, that there was an attempt to kind of really create a new genre of, uh, to, to differentiate themselves from the biblical poets and to make something new. And given that the defining characteristic really was metaphor uh, to kind of say that we could do a poetry that does not have metaphor. Uh, and the alternative um, is that at the same time, there is a lot of other liturgical poetry that is being written, namely by, by Christian poets, many of whom they could have, not many, some of whom they perhaps could have encountered in the land of Israel or have been familiar with their work. And there was, there's a very, 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 very significant, you know, kind of reliance on metaphor in the theological language of Christian liturgical poetry. And so perhaps here, this is actually an attempt to differentiate themselves from the Christian poetic style. We don't know. We don't have any kind of uh, guidebook to Pew that was written in antiquity, so we don't know why this is the case. But it's something which is actually um, quite prevalent throughout all poetry from we have from it, almost all the Pew we have from antiquity, except for a few exemptions. And one of the exemptions is something we'll get to in a moment. Um, but before we get there, um, we're going to look at. Actually, we'll look at it right now already. Right, so what comes after this description, right? We saw that there is this ashram shekach halo, ashram shekach lokav. The piyut that comes up pretty much in every right after that is right? How glorious indeed was the high priest. And this is exactly the opposite of what I said just now. Actually, this entire thing is simile, right? It says, right? He's as beautiful as the clearest canopy of heaven. That's how beautiful the countenance of the priest was. So actually, it's a whole litany of things that come up that say, well, this is actually so, so beautiful, like something else. Um, so given that this is an outlier, there is a question of why now is it OK? Why now did the Paitanim actually want to use simile to describe the countenance of the high priest to incorporate simile into liturgical poetry when they almost actually never use simile? Um, and the answer, I think, is because this is actually a very, very, very old genre. This actually predates Piyut by several hundred years, this specific kind of poem. I mentioned earlier the Book of Ben Sirah, and the Book of Ben Sirah was written in the beginning of the second century BCE in Jerusalem. Um, and I talked about how it has a history of ancient Israel leading up to Simon the son of Onias, the high priest at the time, um, and how Ben Sirah talks about his service in the temple, and then actually ends also by talking about how beautiful he was. And this is what he has to say. He was like a morning star in the midst of a cloud, like the full moon in the days of a feast, like the sun shining on the shrine of the Most High, like the rainbow gleaming in clouds of glory, like a blossom of roses in days of spring, like lilies at exits of water, like a new shoot of Lebanon in days of summer, like fire and incense in a fire pan, like a gold vessel of beaten metal adorned with every precious stone, like an olive tree sprouting forth fruit, and like a cypress towering in the clouds. So it's actually an amazing thing. We, have, we don't have that many examples of this kind of parallel in the history of Piyut or the history of Hebrew poetry in general. Uh, when we, we don't know exactly how this happened, but we see that the specific kind of Piyut, the Amet Nanahadar Piyut, is actually part of a poetic form, a Hebrew poetic form of describing the countenance of the high priest that goes back hundreds of hundreds of years. Right? We first see Amet Nanahadar um, as a Pythonic form 
maybe in the fourth or fifth centuries, but we see that Ori Ben Sira, 600 years before and was writing this kind of poem. So if you ask me, I think the reason why the Paitanim at this point in time were actually willing to kind of incorporate so much Chimli is because what they were doing was actually keeping alive a tradition of describing the countenance of the high priest that already had been so common amongst Israel, amongst the Jews for hundreds of hundreds of years. With that, there are some differences. Um, so I have here on the right side, um, what we have from the common pew that is most often used of a Metna Adal, and on the left side, um, the version that appears in Ben Sirah. It goes on longer, the common pew, like there's, depends on which sitter, which mocks are using, but you know, you can have many more lines than this. Um, but even this is enough, I think, to kind of do some kind of general comparison. And I want you to look at it quickly and tell me what are the differences? What's some of the main differences between what appeared in Ben Sira, second century BCE, what appears in the common pew, fifth or sixth century of the common era? There's more nature references in Ben Sirah's poem than in the common Piyut poem. Mm -hmm. So it's more, but what can we say even more than that? <laughs> like it's it's definitely like there's it is a more nature, but it's also one could say there's even a, a focus on nature, right? It's pretty much all nature. Um, specifically, you have this kind of other thing of like fire and incense in the fire pan, like a gold vessel of beaten metal, thrown with every precious stone. But there is some kind of you kind know, of some kind of digression there, so to speak, right? With these, these two and a half lines are talking about something uh, nature adjacent. Um, but there is a certain kind of continuity, a certain kind of logic to how the how the poem progresses. It goes like a morning star in the midst of a cloud, like the full moon uh, and to the sun. We really have this kind of shared semantic field here, um, which then goes on to the rainbow, to the blossoms, the lilies, a new shoot of Lebanon. Um, digression into kind of fire pan and metals and stones back to olive trees and cypress. Whereas here in Emet Nahadal, we have, it jumps around like crazy, right? It's all over the place. Canopy of heaven, lightning, tzitzit, <laughs> and then back to rainbows, God, roses, um, a crown, a groom. It's really kind of all over the place. Um, so what we see here is that even though the genre has been continued kind of from the time of the Second Temple into late antiquity, from the second century BCE into the fifth century of the Common Era, uh, there is something that has changed and there is an aesthetic that has changed quite a bit. And that's that the Paitanim uh, no longer necessarily value and no longer consider it to be obligatory to kind of stick to that same semantic field. And this is again, going back to what I mentioned earlier of what some scholars of late antique aesthetics will talk about as the jeweled style. As saying that there are these beautiful images but they don't necessarily cohere in the same way um, one thing we're looking at it, I don't know if anyone is kind of familiar, just kind of, of with Byzantine art and how that compares to kind of like high Roman realism. That's kind of how these things are oftentimes thought about by scholars of art history. Um, so interesting genre. Um, for me, it's kind of powerful to know also this is something which is, you know, a very, very ancient genre that goes back to the time of the, of the temple itself and how folks who were near the high priest actually would have praised him. Um, but it's not the end of the Seder Avodah. That actually ends with this, right? We have things like the En Lanu Kohen Gadol This actually is by Yosef Ben Yosef. And after we have described the history of the world culminating in the service of the high priest and then spoken at length rather joyously, perhaps 
about how beautiful the high priest is, we actually kind of take a pretty serious downturn and say, but we have no high priest to atone for us. How can we be expiated on account of our misdeeds? We have no room to meme to inquire. How can we have light while our desire lies in darkness, our desire being the temple? We have sinned, Allah, forgive us our creator. And it goes on. And in some rights, this kind of is the opening to the slichot of Musaf of Yom Kippur. Um, so it's kind of a downer, right? This is how things end. Um, and I think my question for you before I kind of offer my own kind of answer to what's going on here is, how is this liturgy? That the lack that we are experiencing becomes evidence for why we require forgiveness and salvation. So it's like two things. It's like we are, we are asking for, because right, there's like on the national level and there's a personal level, right? Like we could go into Yom Kippur being like, we have our own misdeeds that we have to ask forgiveness for. But what we're really praying for is, you know, exile. <laughs> it's like redemption from exile, I guess. Uh-huh. And I guess then we would say that the whole, everything that came up until this point, until we start getting into the, back into the mode of slichot, maybe the class should have been entitled from slichot to avodat slicha, um, or, and back again, is, um, that's kind of showing, it's emphasizing how significant the lack is. Right, it's showing that this entire kind of structure that we are nostalgic for is absent. Yeah, that's definitely, I think, a lot of what's going on here. There's like, you know, the, that bringing the individual into the collective, bringing this, you know, specific kind of sin into the kind of cosmic um, state of exile that we are all under. Um, and of course, I think also, as I mentioned in the chat here, there also is the element of prayers substitute for sacrificial rite, right? There's no question that just, you know, reciting the sacrifice is, you know, something which well, you know, could serve to replace the actual sacrifice that had taken place in the temple itself. We'll get back to that. And of course, you know, these things could be more than one thing at the same time, right? It could be both a substitution of sacrifice and also um, just kind of further emphasizing how significant the lack is. And maybe those two things actually have to come together. Anyone else have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so Avi, I think that's kind of what Sally had mentioned above. Um, it's a reenactment of the temple service, which we can't do. Um, and the late motif of the following week of Sukkot will be Hoshiana, salvation, redemption, which seems to speak to the national condition. Yeah, I agree. This has to be looked at beyond Elul Tish. It has to go, you have to, you have to really look into Tishrei as well to kind of get the full, the full scope of what's going on here. Uh, but I do think that Yom Kippur in itself also will be spoken about. Um, so I think in a very kind of basic way, <laughs> some of the ritual theory that's a player is we did bad things. Situation in general is quite bad. We can still do something about the bad things that we did and thus atone, but we got to admit that things are bad. <laughs> I'm a little saying it a little cheeky, but I think actually this is, this is a pretty deep thing. It's saying like we have created mechanisms through which we could achieve atonement, but that only could work in the present so long as we admit that, is, that it is imperfect. Right? We have to come to terms with the fact that it isn't perfect if we were to have some salvation in the present. Um, but I don't know if someone wants to say something. Yeah. So I think that that is one way of looking at it. Um, and I think that's something which we see in a lot of Jewish ritual, um, not just in the Seder Avodah, but it is a, a dynamic which is, I think, quite common, perhaps in Jewish existence in general, kind of this idea of we can only survive the exile by saying that there are ways to live with the exile. On the flip side, is saying, um, we could only actually achieve things. We could only actually become better so long as we admit that it will always be imperfect. And then going more to Sally and Avi's uh, point, 
So I think one way that people have oftentimes kind of interpreted to say that Avodah is, you know, there is a prescriptive text that is Leviticus. It prescribes a temple service. And then the, the text, the, the ritual is retextualized into a ritual, right? It's saying that in the temple, they did what it said in the Bible. Now we have made into prayer, made into liturgical poetry, what was on the temple and we perform it. So there's kind of this like one, two, three kind of progression. But I think also something which is interesting uh, about the state of Oda, and that's also about the rabbi's interpretation of, you know, the presentation of how text works in relationship to ritual, um, is that there is a prescriptive text Leviticus, which leads the temple service, but that also leads directly to the textualized ritual. That leads directly to state of Oda. So I think just to kind of phrase it differently, the state of Oda, yes, harkens back to the temple service, but it's also a different way of performing this shared prescriptive text, right? It's saying like, how could I put this another way? Let's say you were going to make Hamlet into a movie, right? <laughs> you're not going to go back and like think about how it was performed in early modern England per se. You're going to go back perhaps to like the early to the original script and then reinvent it in another way and make it into a blockbuster film. Um, you might be influenced by the early modern renditions. You might also be saying like, you might even throw in some nostalgia there as like a wink saying it's not like the real thing. But there are ways of performing the text that are very powerful, that don't necessarily have to only be uh, conditioned or reliant on the past performance in a different medium. So I think that's also some of the ritual theory here and some of what kind of the Paitanim used to give potency to the Seder Avodah as a means of towards atonement, skipping back to the text itself. Um, that's a lot, <laughs> but I think this next summary will also kind of help and this will be a summary both of this class and also something of somewhat to the course itself. So um, asking forgiveness as is, sorry, I should say is not as, or also as, asking for forgiveness is contingent on recognizing sin and acknowledging God's preeminence and benevolence. Given our sins and the state of exile, we recall the merits of our ancestors. Didn't come up as explicitly today, but perhaps also some of this and you know, the historical kind of build up to the state of that is also a way of bringing up the merits of our ancestors. Um, we seek to reenact slash reinvent past ritual that is deemed to have been efficacious in its time, right? We, it's important to remember that whenever we are reenacting these things, whenever we are creating the state of that, we're also kind of creating, you know, a new past, right? It's, if you look at second temple literature itself, it was never quite as idyllic as what appears in the state of Oda, there actually were, even in rabbinic text, it ends up kind of being a lot more kind of, you know, fighting between the high priest and who's going to do what. But there is this attempt to kind of create something which is more idyllic. And I think that's kind of what happens here in the rituals. We are creating and reifying an idyllic past for which we are nostalgic, right? To create this kind of ritual, we have to actually kind of create nostalgia. Um, and again, that also further emphasizes this idea that we must recognize the limits of what can be done. And it's kind of come together. This creation of nostalgia, this creation of a past that is idyllic um, comes along with recognition that that is what is missing. But since we do that, we have thus created a ritual that can be performed for thousands of years. Um, so I think that is Seder Avodah's ritual theory in a nutshell, um, but also it kind of ties into other things that we saw in Elul as well. The slicha, which is, you know, this kind of initial kind of recognition um, of our own sins and this kind of buildup of recognizing how difficult it is to atone in exile and the creation of this kind of nostalgic past which we are trying to go back to and get over to a certain extent um leading up also to the merits of our ancestors which are particularly kind of the emphasis of shoshana and then leading finally to yom kippur although yes we should also look forward to sukkot and such 
on Yom Kippur, it's really kind of the epitome of this, ing this ingenious, I think, kind of way in which a new ritual is created um, to kind of try and do something in the present, to kind of try and create something which will allow us to continue in the state of exile. Um, great. So that's kind of my theory of all this. Um, but I'll be happy to take any questions. We have around two and a half minutes left for that. I could go um, back to the slide or another slide if someone would like. Um, I don't understand the line about the Urim, the Urim Turim. Like, to me. Yeah. Um, well, the idea was that, I'm not gonna go back to the slide right now, but the idea there was that we're, we're lacking the ability to kind of seek guidance via the Urim Tumim. Yeah, I see Sal's comment here. That's also a very nice thing. I think also what Rabbi Silver kind of says does pick up in this as well. Like it's, again, that Yom Kippur is kind of creating something new, which is kind of the rabbinic idea, the, the rabbinic way to make something new as opposed to Rosh Hashanah being focused more on the biblical past. Mm, like Yom Kippur as being an answer to Rosh Hashanah. And I think Avi um, has a comment. You wouldn't be able to see him, but you'll be able to hear him. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know why my video not working anyway do you think it, it could be in any way like you know like the Ramban talks about Shmirat and Mitzvot and the Flitzlarites as being a way to just keep in shape you know to remember what's done maybe this maybe the point of the uh, Avodah is to you know is with the hope that you know next year we'll have the Beit HaMikdash so we have to remember what to do so here it is yeah like a pedagogy kind of thing yeah. Um, I definitely think the Paitanim are oftentimes thinking in terms of pedagogy. Um, and also, interestingly, the Seder of Oda, like they, they were used like, as, as a lot of sources. Like, folks, they you know, would bring them into their discussions. The Baal Morris, yeah. like, you know, when they, when they mention like, uh, the Seder of Oda or something like that. Um, I, think, um, I think something else, though, like maybe, I mean, it definitely is part of it. I think there are other, the other genres of Pew that are more like that. As a role, they're a little bit more like that. Um, like it, it is very, it is very pedagogic, but it's also like, it's just so theatrical and there, there are some other genres of people which are like more explicitly trying to do pedagogy when it doesn't look exactly like that, but it could be, sure. I mean, it could be a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much. It's fascinating. Sure. Sure. Thanks for coming. Avi was my bar mitzvah teacher. Um, well, feel free to shoot me an email or anything if you have any more questions. I'm going to send these slides over so they can be uploaded to the site, uh, which I believe the other slides should already be there as well. And yeah, have a good Yom Kippur. Shana Tova. Thank you. Bye. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Eats, for this class. And thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. Um, we will be uh, live again uh, this Sunday at 1 p.m. with uh, the Stanley Rudolph Memorial High Holidays uh, Lecture, uh, Satan, the Evolution of uh, Evil with Yael Leibowitz. Uh, in addition, we always have many classes uh, happening, so you can find out more information on our website, www.drisha.org classes, or you can watch live um, at www.drisha.org live. Thank you again for this opportunity to uh, learn with you eats and thank you to everyone who attended. We really hope to see you again at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha. Have a good night, good day, wherever you are and Lehitrao.